0: from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of, of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez-Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Ubed-Edom the Gittite. The Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went down and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me, rather than your father or anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children, the day of her death.
1: Good evening, Gordon. Thank you very much for reading for us. In the next few moments, you might find it helpful to have the hand the uh, the handout, which I hope you got, and you certainly will find it helpful to have the Bible open. Back at that reading, two Samuel six, page three zero nine in the pew Bibles, and uh, let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge once again tonight that as we come to your word, that uh, we are utterly helpless, both to understand your word and to feel its conviction, where we should, and then more than that, to live lives that are transformed. And so we cry out to you for help. We ask that your spirit would be at work in us uh, through your word tonight to do powerful things, and we pray this for your glory. Amen. One of the great joys of my job is being able to meet up with couples who are planning to get married and to talk through the, the marriage ceremony. Uh, just imagine a sort of fictitious scenario where I had just such a meeting lined up in a diary, but um, when it came to it, just the, just the bride turned up. And imagine making a sort of polite small chat about wedding plans, menus and reception venues and that sort of thing, but then sort of, imagine after a suitably long kind of delay, just imagine me saying gently um, about whether the, the the groom would be able to join us for the meeting, and then imagine the bride saying to me, <laughs> you've, "You've got it all wrong. It's um, there's no groom. It's just me. Um, I I really want a, a wedding, a a marriage day, but I don't want anyone else involved. It's just going to be me. And then imagine the the, the 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 big day comes, and uh, just imagine how it plays out. The the wedding vows, the the pictures, the cutting of the cake. Imagine afterwards the, the honeymoon, and then the new home. But all along, just the bride, very happily, on her own, and no groom. You would begin to think that this particular bride has made a mistake about what is involved in a marriage, wouldn't you? And then you might think, well, come on, no one's gonna be that stupid to make that kind of mistake. And yet, my fear is that many Christians make that very mistake. In fact, they make a more serious mistake. You see, the, the, the whole Bible is really a story about how two very unlikely parties get together, God and his people, Christ and his bride. It is a love story A story where the great longing is relationship. Being with God, knowing him, enjoying his presence forever. And yet, as I hear many Christians describing why it's so good to be a Christian, they talk about the the joys of being part of a new community, of having support, they talk about the joys of um, a certain future, of, of sins forgiven, all very good and wonderful blessings, but so often they fail to mention the greatest blessing of all, the person at the center of it all, God himself. And so I wonder tonight if many Christians are in danger of making a very serious mistake, forgetting that the whole point of the Bible, the whole point of being a Christian, not the side benefits, although they are wonderful, but the great benefit of Christ himself, knowing him, basking in his presence, And because it is such a common mistake, 2 Samuel 6 will be very important for us tonight for it is a chapter all about a right longing for the presence of the Lord. A right longing to be with the Lord, enjoying him as the great prize of being one of God's people. Uh, We pick up the story in 2 Samuel just after two extraordinary episodes in David's life, the the capture of Jerusalem and the defeat of the Philistines. And by the end of chapter 5, you can imagine David thinking that he has made it. Just think about it. Uh, He now has a well-paid, secure career. He has a home. Well, actually, it's a palace. Uh, He has a good reputation amongst his peers. He now enjoys peace and security from his enemies and a growing family. And isn't that the S10 dream? In forward terms, David has made it. But for David, there is one thing that is lacking and it is the most important thing. Verse one. David again brought together out of Israel, chosen men, 30,000 in all. It almost sounds like he's about to head off to war again. Certainly this is gonna be a major operation, 30,000 people, but look at verse two. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. The rest of 2 Samuel 6 is all about this great task of bringing the ark of God from relative obscurity where it's been sitting in the sidelines of the life of the people of God for too long and bringing it up to its rightful place right in the center of the life of the people. The ark was a a small wooden chest, perhaps the size of a child's toy box. But just in case we missed it, it's very clear why this particular box matters so much. Look at verse 2. The ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. This wooden box, the ark, was a a sign, a symbol of, of God's presence amongst his people. Although he rules over the entire universe, in a very real sense, he had chosen to make his earthly throne right there above the wooden box between the two cherubim spanning the lid of this particular box. And so the ark is where God had made his home on this earth. And so, David's urgent desire for the ark is an urgent desire to bring the Lord's presence back amongst the people. And that is why, in the handouts, I've said this whole chapter is a longing for the Lord's presence. And it is a right longing. Back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, humanity enjoyed God's presence just for a moment before the first sin made it impossible for sinful humans to dwell in God's presence. As the story unfolds, God made a provision for his people, the ark and the tabernacle, a way for him to dwell amongst them, even though they are sinful and he is holy. And here in 2 Samuel, David's longing to regain the ark into the center of the life of the people is a right longing to get back what was lost in the garden, God's presence with his people. And like the people back then under David's reign, who are with David at every step of the way in this chapter, our longing should also be like the people, longing for the Lord's presence to be at the center of our world, our lives, and not so preoccupied with the side benefits of of safety and security and, and those sort of blessings, but the ultimate longing of being restless until God's presence is firmly established amongst us as our central longing and passion. But verses 1 and 2 establish the great longing of the chapter. We need to dive into details because there are some serious surprises afoot. So let's get underway. First of all, you'll see in the handouts, longing for the Lord's presence. First, fear and danger under the wrong kind of king. For some years now, ever since 1 Samuel chapter 7, the ark of God has been in the wrong place. Not at the center of the life of the people, but rather at the house of Abinadab in obscurity. You can read about why in 1 Samuel 6 and 7. It's beyond the time we have tonight. But now in 2 Samuel 6, the rescue operation begins. And look at verse 5. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. With songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. It would have been quite a scene, 30,000 people snaking across the road, uh, shouting and dancing and singing and rejoicing. This is a party, a a carnival, because the Lord's Ark is returning to its rightful place. And then it happened. Verse 6, the uh, the oxen stumble. Uzzah reaches out a hand to steady the Ark, and then... Verse seven, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Like the sound of shattering glass at a party, you can imagine the first scream as someone saw Uzzah slumped down, dead, next to the ark. It would have been awful. We might think, what had Uzzah done wrong? An innocent act trying to help as the oxen stumble. But what we are seeing here is something that humans constantly try to downplay and yet the Bible consistently upholds the white-hot holiness of the Lord. Ever since Genesis 3, humanity approaches the Lord at great risk, for he is holy, and we are not. The Lord's anger here is not a loss of temper, as if he flies off the handle at Uzzah in a fit of rage. The Lord is angry, but not in that way, For the Lord had been so very clear about the danger of coming too close to the ark. In Exodus, the Lord gave instructions for where the ark was to be placed, in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle, protected by a curtain covered in cherubim. And when I say cherubim, don't think cute, cuddly babies. Think rather um, crack soldiers um, defending the way in. Think of um, a substation with a picture of a person being zapped by a bolt of lightning. You know that yellow sign, danger, keep out. Inside is dangerous, don't come in. That's the sense of the cherubim, blocking off the way between God's people and the Lord himself. And so here in 2 Samuel 6, even as we see a good and right longing for the Lord's presence, we also see the fear and danger of coming too close. And notice David's response, verse nine. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? David has done many good things as king so far, but this is not one of them. He has failed to bring the ark to Jerusalem and there are important clues that show us why. In this episode, he has been acting as the wrong kind of king in chapter six. Notice that so far in T. Samuel, David has not inquired of the Lord. Uh, Elsewhere in T. Samuel, we see him again and again asking before any step is taken, but he doesn't inquire this time. And then verse three, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab. I know there's lots of excitement growing about the royal wedding. Only six days to go. Very exciting. Um, imagine the big day comes. And then imagine seeing the queen stepping out of her palace to head towards St. George's Palace. You can see them up in the venue already. And um, imagine her stepping out, not into a glorious gold gilded carriage, but rather into a plain and basic wooden cart. Imagine you're kind of slumped in the back of the cart being sort of taken to the palace. It, it wouldn't be right. And so too here in verse three, for the Lord of the universe, a cart. More than that, the, the, the last time we saw a cart being used to carry the ark was when the Philistines nicked the ark back in 1 Samuel. And they weren't quite sure what to do with the ark of God. So one of their clever Um, pagan priests came up with the idea of putting onto a a cart and sending it off with some oxen. Um, In other words, to put the the ark into a cart was a kind of pagan solution to transporting the the ark around, not a, a solution the people of God should have had. But most significantly of all, the Lord had clearly told the people how they were to transport the ark, not on a cart, but using poles that went through the loops on the corner of the ark And then the poles would rest on the shoulders of the priests. I put Numbers 4 verse 5 there in the handout just as a reference. You can check it out later on. And in that same verse in Numbers, the Lord warns the people not to touch the ark. The Lord has been very, very clear throughout the Bible how the people are to stay away from the ark. And so as we watch Uzzah next to the ark, it's an accident waiting to happen. In verse 8, when David is angry, I I think initially he's angry at the Lord. How could this happen, Lord? But I imagine as David thought more about it, his anger turned away from the Lord and was focused instead on himself. For he was the king. It was his plan, his decision, his execution. And on his watch, someone under him had died terribly. You can imagine him being angry. He had failed as a king to bring the presence of the Lord safely in. And so we're seeing here a right longing for the Lord's presence, but fear and danger under the wrong kind of king. David's careless presumption towards the Lord in his actions. Of course, that same presumption is alive and well today. Many people think if there is a God, I will decide what kind of God he is. I will define for him how holy he is. I will define the boundaries and ways to approach him. And when I die, it is almost part of God's job description to welcome me into his presence in heaven as if he is duty bound to to take me as I am. But that kind of presumption gets blown out of the water in 2 Samuel 6 as Oza slumps down next to the ark a sobering reminder that God is the one who decides how and when sinful people can approach his presence. David seems too scared to carry on with this plan. He parks the ark, verse 10. It stays with Obed-Edom, a Gittite, who is a Philistine. I guess that David couldn't find an Israelite who was brave enough to have the ark in their house, given what happened to Uzzah. And so Obed-Edom is selected. But look at verse 11. Verse 11. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. The Lord is holy and fearful, but he has come to bless. The Lord's presence is a very good thing, (coughs) even for this pagan. And that sets us up for what happens next. Point two in the handout, joy and blessing under the right kind of king. David hears about the blessing coming to Obed-Edom and this is the catalyst for a second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem and things this time are very different. Look at verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he, David, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. What a difference. Notice the ark is now being carried by people not on a cart. Numbers 4 is being paid attention to now. And then imagine all the blood. We know the original journey was nine miles. We don't know quite how far they got to Obed-Edom's house, but it's probably fair to guess there are many miles left to go. And every six steps, a sacrifice. The road would have been awash with blood. And as king... Look at David, verse 13, whether or not it was actually David carrying out the sacrifices, he was clearly involved in overseeing what happened. And again in verse 17, after the ark arrives at its new home, David again oversees more sacrifices. And here we're seeing David as a king who brings sacrifice in contrast to what happened in the first half of the chapter. Gone is the presumption of the first attempt. And because God's laws are respected and because of the sacrifices, no one dies. Instead, verse 12, there was rejoicing. Verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. Verse 15, the whole house of Israel joined in with shouts and trumpets. And then verse 18, David blessed the people and sent them home with, verse 19, gifts of bread and dates and raisins. This is a very good day in the life of Israel a day of joy and blessing as the Lord's presence comes safely to the people under the right kind of king. It's a good day except for one person. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And then later on, as David came back to the house with brutal sarcasm, verse 20, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David had been dancing for an audience of one, dancing for the Lord's benefit alone, Because he knew how wonderful it was to be able to bring the Lord's presence into Jerusalem. He didn't care what people thought of him. And yet as Michal watched on, all she saw was a silly king with all the dignity of a streaker. Three times we are reminded that she was a daughter of Saul. That is, from a house known for having the wrong attitude towards the Lord and there are lots of people who are barren in the Bible, but rarely, rare, rarely is barrenness a sign of God's judgment. But in verse 23, as Michal scorns the king, her barrenness is a fitting judgment. For as the house of Saul weakens, so the house of David continues from strength to strength. And notice David's response to Michal, verse 22. I will become even more indignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. David doesn't mind being mocked and shamed. He is serving the Lord and that is all he cares about. And so David is a king who endures shame. Well, what about us here tonight, many thousands of years later? What should we make of this remarkable day in the life of Israel. Sacrifice and shame are two words not normally associated with a king. And yet here in 2 Samuel 6, as so often happens in the Bible, we are having to rethink. This is the kind of king God's people need if they are to experience joy and blessing in the presence of the Lord. And 1,000 years later, another king would come. Like David, he was a king who brought sacrifices. But unlike David, who oversaw sacrifices. This second king gave himself as a sacrifice. Like David, the second king was willing to be mocked and scorned. Because like David, he knew this path of shame was the path to true joy. And as this other king hung dying on a Roman cross, disrobed for all to see, scorned for claiming to be the very king he actually was, so he opened a way into God's presence once and for all. David sent the people home safe with a blessing and a few raisin cakes. But King Jesus sends us home with every spiritual blessing, including most wonderfully, perfect access into God's presence forever. And Christian, this is no small thing. Remember the white hot holiness of the Lord. No one dare come near. And yet King Jesus was willing to die for us so that unlike Uzzah, we might not die. In Christ, what was lost in the garden has been restored and one day what we have now in Christ will fully be made known to us as we gather around the throne in God's presence with no fear and with great joy and eternal blessing. Sadly, there are many Michael's today who see King Jesus revealed for them in the scriptures and all they can see is a disgraceful king they want nothing to do with and they turn away in scorn Please don't make that mistake. For the king who brings sacrifice and who is shamed is the only way into God's presence. He will if you ask him. And sadly there are many others who forget the one reason for which King Jesus was willing to sacrifice and experience shame. To bring us to God for an eternity of love and worship and as I finish, uh, what is the best thing about being a Christian? I wonder how you would answer if someone asked you tonight. Not a bad question to discuss afterwards over coffee. But may our cry be the cry of the psalmists. He said, "How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty? My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out." for the living Lord. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your word is given to us to help us think rightly about who you are and who we are and Tonight, we have seen sobering things about your holiness and our sinfulness. Father, please, uh, would you use those thoughts, that, that clarity of understanding to help us rejoice in Christ afresh? And Father, may we be like the people back in 2 Samuel 6, whose greatest thoughts, whose greatest joy, whose greatest longing was the presence of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.